Blog Talk Radio. Gonna tell you a little bedtime tale, legend it will become. Burgers flying out the door, sail on. Two for one, no concern for the future. Living for today. Fast food bite on your way, lay it all to waste. The masses are afflicted now. Moo, mad cow. Mad cow. Mad cow, mad cow, line dance song. Hey, Sangai Nation, welcome to the show on another Friday afternoon. Sangai with you as usual. The coach with the most coming at us from coast to coast. He doesn't mean to brag, but he has to boast because his favorite part of social media is making a post. Coach Mike Jones on assignment today. He won't be with us, but I want to jump into things immediately this week. We have with us a wrestler from the Pacific Northwest who is in the Portland wrestling era of the 90s and early 2000s. Lewis Rock, thank you so much for being here today. We appreciate it. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I really uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity to come on, and I look forward to uh, speaking with you and your guests today. Absolutely. We're happy to have you. And as you probably know, our traditional first-timer question, which I will give to you is, what led to you getting into the crazy business of professional wrestling? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think it was two things. Uh, I remember when I was uh, five years old and WrestleMania came out on Nintendo, uh, I had asked my, my mom uh, what she had thought uh, of me being a pro wrestler one day, and she said that if I, I did that, uh, she would absolutely die inside. And so uh, that was the first one that gave me an inkling that it might be kind of fun uh, to do. Uh, but then when I was 13, I got cable television. And, uh, you know, one of the first things that came on uh, was Monday Night Raw uh, that I was watching. It was back in 93, right around the time that uh, uh, the one two three kid uh, upset Razor Ramon, you know, kind of right in that era. And uh, the characters to me in the form of entertainment were so unique and uh, so unbelievably compelling. And being someone that liked to entertain other people, uh, you know, I thought, hey, I, I would really like to explore a career in this someday. And uh, and it was three years later that I ran into the coach with the most. Uh, and uh, he invited me down to the Projects Wrestling School, and the rest is history. Now, when you first met Coach, did he blow the whistle at you? <laughs> uh, no, but I'll, I remember... Uh, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, I love about uh, the coach is he protects the business uh, at all costs, no matter what. Very, very old school in that regard, and I, and I cherish that. And um, I'll tell you, it was probably two months' worth of training and me going down there three, four days a week uh, before he ever even smiled at me and started smartening me up a little bit <laughs> and uh, um, so it was, it was a great welcoming, and of course we ended up working together for many years. But uh, um, uh, yeah, he he definitely uh, made it quite the experience, and uh, really made you earn your keep uh, just to have uh, his respect and and really the honor of learning from him. 
now the era that you entered professional wrestling was kind of unique. It was after Don Owen had closed down the very long-tenured Portland wrestling territory that a lot of people think of when they think of Portland wrestling. But it was trying to be revived by a few different people in a few different times. Uh, Sandy Barr took over for a while. Frank Olberson had it for a while. There were a few incarnations of Portland wrestling. They had good TV spots. They drew decently. What was it like breaking into that era as opposed to what you think you may have broke in either before or after that era? Yeah, uh, gr- great question. You know, it, it was a very unique time uh, in in the business, especially to be coming in because, uh, you know, down in the Portland area, you had Ivan and Jeff Kafori who were, you know, um, working with um, uh, Don Koss uh, to revamp uh, Portland Wrestling. Uh, and they, of course, had the, the TV uh, slot down there. And then you had Pete Schweitzer, who was starting up, and he would run the Gresham Armory and uh, um, a few other locations. And uh, then, uh, of course, uh, you you had Sandy Barr. And at that time, uh, Sandy uh, was involved with two things. One, the Luchadors, uh, and so, um, and Tito Carrion and that group. Uh, And then his flea market, of course. And so um, uh, that was kind of the lay of the land at the time. Now, one of the interesting things, uh, and, and I think this this is true, you know, in Tacoma you had uh, the UIWA with Mike and Debashi, uh, and then Tim Flowers, PWF, and then if you went further north you had, you know, All-Star Wrestling run by Fabio Chiesa at the time, and then uh, ECCW with Michelle Starr. But to answer your question, one of the unique pieces at that time was that in, in any given territory, people were feuding with each other to a to a large extent, to the point where, um, you know, they would often, like, if you worked for ECCW in Canada, the expectation was you weren't working for All-Star Wrestling and vice versa. I think Tim Flowers took it to the biggest extreme, where it was, hey, you work for me in, in Tacoma and Cloverdale, or you don't work anywhere else. Um, uh, whereas in, in Oregon, it was something similar, but they all hated each other so much that they never talked to one another. And so I realized pretty quickly I could get away with getting booked with all three, and chances were the others might not necessarily hear about it. And if they did, you know, I was always loyal, showed up, uh, didn't complain if the PO wasn't what it should have been. I, you know, I just wanted the opportunity. And so in that regard, getting regular work, uh, really took a lot of effort because each promotion was really only running one to two shows a month. And so, you know, if you wanted to work Thursday through Sunday, and ideally twice on Sunday at the time, uh, you really had to serve as your own agent, your own manager, and be working the phone seven days a week uh, to get yourself booked. Now, you know, luckily, once you get booked in a territory a couple times, Provided you do a good job, put on a good show, you know, you don't have to call anymore. They'll call you. But um, initially, it was, it was very tough. It wasn't the atmosphere where you could, you know, prove yourself, get hired by an organization, um, and then just work that quote-unquote territory uh, if you wanted to work full-time. So. 
Oh, like you said, it was sort of a divided system where you work for one independent group or you basically didn't work because they were factionalized in the region here. In this era that we're in, guys can go pretty much where they want with very few exceptions. Uh, you can work sometimes three or four shows in a single week for different promotions in the Pacific Northwest. There's a lot more opportunities to wrestle diverse opponents and diverse companies. Do you think looking at the landscape of what independent wrestling is now versus independent wrestling when you were breaking in and most active, you would have preferred one over the other? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I prefer today's landscape much more. And uh, for the same reason that, that, you know, 25 years ago, I would tell promoters when they would call me out on it, which was that, you know, at, at the time that I was involved with the business, like you had mentioned, you know, Portland Wrestling was trying to be revived. All-Star Wrestling was trying to be revived. Uh, Tim Flowers was trying to get Tacoma humming weekly in conjunction with Cloverdale. And my theory on it was always that, hey, since, you know, no one of us is going to make or break your organization and you haven't invested so much money into us that in any way, you know, you have rights as a promoter to our exclusivity. To me, it only made sense. Like, hey, if you really want to grow a territory, the guys that you book should be wrestling as much as possible and should get every last piece of experience that they could. You know, it's it's why I would drive five hours one way to Langley, British Columbia, um, to wrestle in front of eight people at the House of Pain. Uh, wasn't because you know I was making huge sums of money or they were investing in me exclusively. It was because I wanted the experience and I, and I didn't care. And so, the fact that guys can go out and do that today, at least at the independent level. Now, sure, when you now sure when you WWE levels when you've invested so much into a character or their development, you know, potentially there's rights to exclusivity that makes sense, but for the independent wrestling landscape, you know, people should be able to work as much as they possibly can uh, to be the best possible talent that they can. And uh, I think it was one of the downfalls, actually, of why some of those startups were unsuccessful in the late 90s and early 2000s was because you could never get one show with the best local talent on it. It was always two or three matches with the best, and then everyone else is upper-comer. Whereas if we were allowed to to all wrestle uh, for every uh, promoter that we wanted at any time, every single one of those shows could have sold out. And so that piece to me never made sense. And so I really much prefer the landscape today. Um, the other thing too is to keep in mind is that it's cleaned up a lot as well. You know, there's, there's not as much, um, how should I say it? Uh, there's not as many gimmicks involved. There's not as much drug use involved. Steroids aren't as big of a thing as they used to be. Hot headedness isn't tolerated. Um, you know, back when I came up, all of those things were prevalent and in many cases, uh, it was, you know, some of the top people involved with that that were ultimately the ending of the promotion, whereas today 
um, you know, that kind of stuff isn't tolerated and is weeded out uh, typically uh, much sooner. Hopefully this isn't uh, G-rated. Uh, <laughs> I know that's not a G-rated topic, but uh, it's definitely important. Oh, you're all good. You're all good. We strive for PG-13-ish. Okay. Good to know. Oh, like I was saying, you're from the era where there was television for independent wrestling and the companies were doing well. And in that part of wrestling history in the Pacific Northwest, you still had a pretty decent fan base coming off of the Owen era, and even though they didn't have a lot of promotions and they had to sort of stick to the one closest to them since, like you said, it was factionalized and guys were carving up the Pacific Northwest into its own territorial system. Did you follow other groups that you may not have wrestled for necessarily, but you were trying to keep track of what other people were doing, what trends may have been catching on with the other groups, what was drawing, what was not drawing, or did you stick to your own company and focus on what that was doing? No, another another really great and insightful question. I tried to keep tabs, uh, and, and at the time, the Internet was still a very unique thing. Like, uh, you know, I remember, in fact, uh, one of the ways, you know, I couldn't afford the money as a 16-year-old to go to the project's uh, wrestling school. And the way that I got offering to build their first website, because uh, that was something that I had taught myself to do when, you know, Netscape and all that sort of thing was out. But point being is that it's not like today where you could just go online and follow, you know, every single territory and operation, see all their shows and matches. Um, and so, uh, you know, one of the things that I always paid attention to um, and would ask if I wasn't over here in the locker room was where some of the guys that were only coming in uh, periodically, what were they doing? while the rest of us were working in territory because the answer was almost always that they were working elsewhere. Um, but many of them, because the spots were so few and far between, kept that for themselves because they didn't want to, you know, uh, have any competition in that regard. But some of the stuff that comes to mind, right, like so you've got um, – you know, like Dr. Luther, for example, up in the ECCW era, you know, he would kind of come in and out, but you always knew that he was working further east in Canada from British Columbia than anybody else from Vancouver, um, you know, over into Alberta, Saskatchewan, the Maritimes, that sort of thing. Uh, similar to when they brought in Kurgan, uh, the interrogator. Um, uh, when ECCW brought him in, you know, he's from New Brunswick, worked the Maritimes, uh, worked uh, uh, Calgary, uh, those areas. And so you kind of had that that piece that I always try to keep tabs on. But then at the time, you also had Roland Alexander and uh, the XPW group in uh, Southern California um, and, and eventually UPW uh, with Rick Bassman, um, 
who actually did some work for when I worked for Roddy Piper uh, later on in the 2000s. But um, always wanted to keep tabs, especially on the organizations that uh, were booking local talent, even if it was only one of us uh, here and there, um, and that were being tracked nationally. And at the time, there were very few promotions that met that criteria. Um, I remember uh, when Tony Kazina went back east, Pennsylvania, and worked the uh, the Super 8 Cup. Um, no one, you know, no one in Washington State or in this territory was tracking uh, not only uh, who was running and how to get that done, but how to even get booked over there. Um, and so um, uh, tracking what was going on industry-wide and what some of those trends were and what was making it nationally became critical uh, to your success as a wrestler. However, it was exceptionally hard to do due to a lack of technology that we have today. So, um, but, but, yeah, those are the main ones that we would track. I also had a booking in Texas one time. Uh, I ultimately had to – uh, to cancel uh, it because I had uh, got booked with Roddy and the XWF. But um, uh, so, you know, there were some opportunities that would come up from time to time. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's pretty much how we focused on it uh, during that era. Now, you mentioned Roddy Piper. When you – Got out of active wrestling. You sort of hooked up with Roddy Piper and became his right-hand man, so to speak. What led to you having ties to Roddy Piper to where he brought you aboard to help him out in his uh, day-to-day business ventures? Sure. So um, at the time, uh, a guy named Johnny Fairplay, who uh, is still you know, you know active today, um, yet yeah, wasn't at the time, but was uh, on Survivor uh, years later, a television show, and and so um, you know he has a bit of a following. He had uh, previously worked with the Hardys and and a bunch of other folks for New Dimension Wrestling out in North Carolina, and he had moved to Portland, Oregon and uh, had found that website, actually, that I had created for, uh, for Debashi and, uh, and Mike and called me on the phone one day and says, hey, my name is Johnny Fairplay. I'm moving out uh, to the area. I'm a wrestling manager involved in the business, run my own radio show kind of thing. And uh, I said, I would love to manage you. That's uh, what he said. And so that started a relationship with, with Johnny where he, he would manage me for uh, quite a while. Um, while he was doing that, um, Bart Sawyer, who was a friend, uh, Steve Stewart, who was friends with Roddy Piper, uh, had uh, found out that Roddy needed an assistant and uh, um, contacted Johnny Fairplay and said, hey, I know a guy who's in town that's working the business that might fit the bill. And so ultimately Roddy hired Johnny as his personal assistant while Johnny was managing me for with wrestling. And so, you know, fast forward a few months, uh, the XWF is formed by, by Jimmy Hart and uh, – uh, um, the Nasty Boys and Valentine, and, and there were some other initial investors uh, with it. And uh, so Johnny gets me booked with the XWF, 
and uh, uh, invites me out to do their first tour. And so uh, we're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the idea was that Johnny, through working with Roddy and managing me, would use his connection with Roddy, and then I would get my debut in the XWF Wrestling and, you know, then that would take off from there. And, and, you know, Johnny would have two people successful in the business he was working for. Well, it became apparent to me very quickly that Roddy was not happy for whatever reason with Johnny as his assistant. Um, and uh, it was that first night of the tour, or actually, apologies, second night of the tour in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, it's 3 a.m., and uh, Roddy fires Johnny, and it leaves me and Roddy sitting in a hotel room, and he looks at me, and he says, and keep in mind, I'm 19 at the time, looks at me and says, hey, kid, how would you like a job? And I said, well, what did you have in mind? And he said, well, you saw what just happened here, so how about uh, I'll, I'll pay you to be my assistant, and I'll teach you how to wrestle. And uh, um, we'll see what, what happens from there. And so um, I said, yeah, sure, of course, let's do it. And so uh, I was in college at the time, actually, at the University of Washington, uh, wrestling on the weekends. And uh, um, so, yeah, ended up being his assistant for about three months and then became his manager and handler. Uh, and that lasted for the better part of uh, four years. And so... That's initially how we uh, got hooked up was through Johnny Fairplay and the XWF connection. Now, obviously, Roddy Piper, not only a national celebrity from professional wrestling and from movies, he was an institution here in the Pacific Northwest for many years. His biggest break came with Don Owen and getting a start in Portland wrestling. What was it like being from the Northwest where Roddy is such a huge, huge icon and being able to work so closely with him, especially being located in the area where he was just a beloved figure? Well, phenomenal. Uh, for one thing, um, and uh, his wealth of knowledge, of course, on all things wrestling, and specifically wrestling psychology, uh, which was very interesting to me because I was a psychology and theology major um, in in college, um, just absolutely fascinating. And one one thing people didn't realized about Roddy was that, um, and but he, he shared this publicly, was he only had a sixth-grade education but had an IQ of 188. You know, an IQ of 140 is considered genius. Uh, 188 is off the charts. And so his ability to not only understand wrestling psychology but to be 20 or 30 steps ahead in any deal, conversation, or uh, really much of anything that involved any brain power at all was exceptionally rare and compelling. Um, and so we, you know, very quickly, one of the things I learned, you know, when you work for Roddy, you're on the road 300 to 330 days a year. And so you effectively spend almost every minute of every day all year with them 
And so, you know, he became not only my best friend, but uh, a father to me um, very much because my own dad had died um, just shortly before I started working for him. And uh, and so, yeah, you know, there was the business relationship that we had and there was the personal friendship that we had that carried on for many years until, until he passed. Um, but phenomenal. Uh, that period with Roddy shaped my entire life, my outlook on life, my business acumen, uh, all of it. And, um, and of course, you know, uh, him being as popular as he was, not just, you know, worldwide and in the industry, but of course, locally as well, um, just added, added to that piece. Um, so yeah, really phenomenal. Uh, in fact, I went to all uh, all 48 contiguous uh, states except Alaska and Hawaii. Um, well, actually, I did go to Alaska uh, with Roddy. So 49 of the 50 states uh, in a period of three years, just to give you an idea of how much time we were on the road and how much business we did. Um, and then also, uh, of course, worked in Europe uh, multiple times, uh, Canada, and uh so yeah, it was phenomenal. Shaped my entire life. Now I don't know if you have intel on this, but I know when Roddy Piper had released his first autobiography, he had scheduled an autograph signing, book signing in Lake Forest Park, Washington, right outside of Seattle. And the day of, he canceled it in order to go to Nashville, Tennessee, where he made his, I believe, only appearance for what was then NWA TNA. He never did make up the appearance. Do you know why Roddy chose to go to TNA when he did and skip out on the book signing? Yeah, you know... uh... Interestingly enough, when I did uh, did uh, another radio show a few weeks ago, uh, the same question on Lake Forest Park uh, was actually brought up, uh, which is funny because I had forgotten that we had canceled that show. I remember the circumstances now. Okay, so here's how it went down. So we were on the book tour, which was we were on Billy Ray Cyrus's bus, which we had rented for a month to go to 31 book signings in 27 days. And during our time, uh, I can't remember. uh, Oh, it's right when the book tour started. That's right, because we started in Nashville. So we flew from L.A. where our our offices and and where we lived uh, was. And uh, um, before we started that tour, uh, me and Roddy had gone over to Jerry uh, Jarrett's house with Jeff. We we went and met Jeff and then followed him over to Jerry's house. And so um, we had had a recent uh, piece of business with them, or at least I should say discussion with them about some potential business um, at that time. And so, you know, we did that for a couple hours, whatever, uh, with Jerry, and then um, ended up going on our book tour. Well, as we um, are going through the book tour, uh, the attendance uh, was was really phenomenal, but uh, we had had some issues at some of the signings, like uh, they didn't have enough books at one of them, uh, another one, um, uh, the books had, had arrived, uh, were going to arrive a day late, and they couldn't be sure that they had them, this or that. 
and we were coming to the tail end of the tour. And so, you know, having had three or four towns that, uh, one of which was Las Vegas, that we had had to cancel um, due to those reasons, Roddy was looking for a really big push to not only give his book additional national exposure, um, but in some way to, you know, make up for the shows that we had to cancel while also uh, keeping himself uh, relevant beyond this national book tour. You know, he had, I think, always, well, not, not I think, I know, had always hoped that the book tour uh, would be a catapult or a springboard back into national spotlight. And so um, uh, we we called Jeff and worked out a deal, and Brody said, the only way that I will do this is if no one knows. And, and so there was only four people that knew. It was Jeff Jarrett. Uh, myself, David Penzer, and Roddy. And so there was a park across from the fairgrounds in Nashville where they would hold TNA. And uh, uh, as a result of, uh, of, of that placement, we were there sitting in an SUV, me, Roddy, and Dave Penzer, just waiting. And uh, Jeff called uh, and said, hey, all right, it's time, come over. And so we hop out of this SUV and run into the arena, and uh, and the boys, of course, have no idea. Mike Tanay doesn't know. His reaction on on the pay-per-view was legitimate. No one knew. Um, and, uh, and I actually went to the ring with Roddy that night. If you go and watch that pay-per-view, I was in the ring with him. And then, of course, uh, you know, that turned into uh, him questioning Russo about his involvement in Owen's death, and then Russo – completely unscripted and unplanned hops in the ring and, and uh, that whole fiasco where, and then the Harris brothers came in and they played it out. But that's how that whole thing came about um, and how it was executed. And it was, it was really just a piece of business that made sense at the time. And, and with the tour wrapping up, you know, as much as, you know, I'm sure, well, I know Roddy was disappointed anytime he had to cancel a show, um, you know, canceling Lake Forest Park, Washington, so we can go on national pay-per-view uh, and be relevant was just an opportunity from a business sense that couldn't be passed up. Um, so uh, ultimately, the plans were to make it up. It just never worked out to to do that. And then there were some other issues with Penguin Putnam uh, regarding uh, the release and, and some other things um, in that light. So as a result of all of that, we just never ended up making up the date. At the time of Roddy's passing, he was working on another autobiography, which ultimately his children finished and released after his death. Do you know why Roddy chose to do the second autobiography and basically restart that project, even though he had the one book out? Was he just that dissatisfied with how the first one was handled by the publisher or the sales or a combination? Sure. Um, so uh, two things. Uh, yes, he was, he was not happy with how the first one uh, went down, we'll just say. Um, so that was always a, um, a, a, a sore spot. Uh, for him 
But I, I don't believe, at least in my conversations with him, I don't believe that that played a role in his decision to, to do a second book. I think the overarching reason for him doing a second autobiography was to make sure that his kids knew uh, the truth of his background, uh, his legacy, um, you know, Roddy, there was a lot of Roddy's um, pre-wrestling time uh, before he was 15 years old that, that he didn't share a lot of. Um, and I think he knew that his life was, you know, likely coming to an end or could soon. And it was important to him that he told his story um, and that, you know, his kids especially could have that and know that aspect of their father. Um, and, you know, if there's anybody that knows anything about Roddy Piper, they'll know that, that he cares about his kids and his family more than anything else in the world. And um, it's to a degree that if, if everyone could emulate uh, we would have just peace and harmony amongst one another. And I know, you know, I've been married for 12 years, so when I start a family, if I can be half of the father that, that Roddy was and love my family half as much as he did and his kids, that I will be well off. Um, but that, that, was, that was the ultimate uh, reason. I'm sure there were secondary and tertiary reasons that he decided to write a second book, but um, we we only discussed it uh, one time specifically, um, and that was the main reason that he gave me, which which made perfect sense to me, uh, just just knowing him. I think the other piece was is that you know some of if you've read that book, some of what's in there is painful for him to tell. And one of the things that Roddy didn't want was if he told that story to then have a bunch of questions, especially about his personal life, um, that he would have to answer for or be asked to answer for is a better way to put it. And so doing that near the end of, of his life um, made sense for him in that regard as well. A looking at today's landscape, the Pacific Northwest has gotten probably as hot as it has ever been as far as independent professional wrestling. You have a lot of talent that has made it to the national stage in the last 15 years. Uh, Aubrey Edwards, Darby Allen, Nick Wayne, all with AEW. Davey Richards has been with Ring of Honor and Impact Wrestling multiple runs. Dr. Luther has had a stint on AEW, and then you have promotions like Defy and Prestige and Relentless Wrestling all drawing very, very well in Oregon and Washington. What do you think, as someone that's maybe not actively in the wrestling business anymore, but as a casual observer looking at what's happening? I love it. Um, and and one of the main reasons that I love it, you know, like Defy Wrestling, for example, right? Like, uh, you know, the guys that are behind Defy or that have been a part of creating it from the ground up um, and or that are invested in it, uh, you know, Matt Farmer uh, comes to mind. I know Jim Valley does commentary with them. Uh, Steve Meggs, those folks. 
you know, I was very, very close with, with Matt Farmer, and he's still a brother of mine, even though we don't see each other as, as often as, as we would probably like. Um, but I absolutely love everything about success that has been achieved because, you know, at the time that I was in the business during that period, um, there were so many different companies that wanted to be the next big thing and for one reason or another could just never stay afloat and make it happen financially, and that was problematic. And so to see... Uh, the way that Defy Wrestling has succeeded where others have not and where it's also um, really redefined what a cutting-edge independent live show experience is, to me that is just phenomenal because it's not only, you know, as a fan something that you enjoy and love, but knowing how many people came and failed beforehand only for this to now be as successful as it is, it, it makes me really happy. And, and the, other, the other thing about it that, that I think is easy to lose sight of is when you're as successful as, as the as – we'll just continue with the Defy example – you bring in talent, right, that uh, – will only make those locally looking for their break better because, you know, one of the things that's so critical is when you're coming up in the business, you need to have time with veterans. You need to have time in the locker room with them, working with them, um, uh, learning the business from them. And now that we're in a situation where you can have, you know, three, four, five, six, you know, big national-named veterans on a local show sharing a card with, you know, many local guys that have been wrestling for 10 minutes um, is phenomenal, you know. And, uh, I mean, I remember when uh, Christopher Daniels would come in and do an ECCW tour. Uh, he would come in every, you know, three or four months. Like, that was such a big deal to share a locker room with him and have that experience. And, uh, um, you know, same like when Kurgan would come in, that Brian Adams come in. I mean, even just one guy once a year was a huge deal. Um, and so I, I just love that for the up-and-comers, they're able to to have that experience and, and to, to see that. And, um, you know, I actually wrestled Christopher Daniels in Lake Elsinore, California, um, uh, many years ago. And uh, uh, to see him still working and continuing to teach and provide guidance uh, the way he did for me there and, and in ECCW before that, it's just really, really awesome. And, and he was such a great dude, like just such a nice guy. And so uh, just really great to see his success as well continue. So. That's how I feel about about today's landscape. And we talked about the exclusivity of a lot of the promotions when you were actively wrestling. There's a relatively new wrestling company out of Ocean Shores, Washington. And while they don't insist that their talent is exclusive, they actually offer contracts for each show for the talent so they are contracted talent they know ahead of time what they will make it's all arranged ahead of time it's ran 
very differently than most other independent wrestling companies I've ever worked for or known about. When you were wrestling, did you actually get very many contracts that you had to sign for working for these companies? Never once. Everything was a handshake. And uh, um, and I can tell you there were only two people, well, three, that ever paid me what they said they would pay me every single time. Uh, that was Ivan and Jeff Kafori, who would even throw an extra for gas, by the way. So just phenomenal. And Pete Schweitzer. I mean, Pete Schweitzer could, could run a show, not promote it at all, have like, you know, four and a half people show up, and everybody still got paid in full what what they were supposed to get paid. And uh, um, so, no, not only did I not sign any contracts, um, uh, I was only ever paid correctly, at least in the independents, um, uh, you know, the, prior to working with Roddy, where I was always paid correctly, um, uh, by the Kaforis and Schweitzer. Oh, I never personally witnessed this, but I've been told by several people that Roddy Piper in his last few years would often go to local independent companies in the Pacific Northwest, and he would very conspicuously watch the event from usually outside looking in a door or a window where he would sneak in and get to a spot where he wouldn't be noticed by fans and he would watch the show and then call the promoter and give feedback on what he saw. Can you testify to the fact that Roddy was doing that for the independent scene here in our area? No, I, I can't. Um, it wasn't something that, uh, that it, if true, we ever talked about uh, in later times. Um, I, I can tell you this, though. Um, like, Roddy absolutely, um, God, I hate to say this like this, but it's true. Roddy hated professional wrestling. Like, if he could have done anything else possible, he would have. And, and he tried, you know, with the books, with acting, all of those things. So, like, Roddy wasn't a guy who would turn on and watch wrestling at home. Or if I say, hey, Roddy, let's play back the match of, of what you just did or the appearance that you just did. Absolutely not. Not happening. Um, and so and with that said, though, I know that Roddy was big on giving back to the next generation of talent. Um, and so, um, you know, if, if potentially that was something that he did in later years as a way to give back, um, sure, uh, possible. Uh, definitely not when I worked with him. He wouldn't be caught dead at a wrestling show that he wasn't booked at, and even then it would be in and out quickly. Um, uh, the only other thing I can think of, right, is his, uh, his son was involved in wrestling uh, for, for a little while, um, and uh, knowing how protective Roddy is of, of uh, his family uh, and his kids, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if 
you know, one of the companies that uh, that any of his kids would want to work for, that he would go and, and scope uh, the shit out of them uh, multiple times. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm speculating here. But, um, uh, yeah, th- th- those would be my thoughts on it. You know, it's – in fact, one of the things that used to annoy uh, Roddy about Johnny Fairplay more than anything else – was all Johnny ever wanted to do was talk wrestling or put wrestling stuff on TV and get Roddy's thoughts on it. When, you know, as a fan, you can't blame him. Um, but Roddy hated that sort of thing. Absolutely hated it. Uh, I don't know that he's ever even seen any of the movies that he's done other than maybe one or two uh, via the premieres that uh, that he went to. Um, I just wasn't a, a fan of that. Fair enough. One of the goals that a lot of wrestlers had was always going to Japan to wrestle. It used to be a rite of passage to get that Ribera Steakhouse jacket. Mm -hmm. Things have opened up a lot more for independent wrestlers from North America to go to Japan. But 15, 20 years ago and before that, it was a monumental feat if you were able to make it to Japan for a tour. Was Japan something that you ever gave much thought to as an active wrestler? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, like, Japan was the place everybody wanted to go, and especially at the time. You know, when I broke into the business, I started school at 16 and actually – lied about my age to get my wrestling license to have my pro debut in Washington because I wasn't 18 yet. And so at that time, right, like the idea of, of being able to go to a Japanese dojo and and, and learn um, from there and or even get booked was phenomenal. There just weren't any connections to doing that. And, uh, you know, and at the time, I, I, you know, thought I was talented and good enough to go and do that. Uh, as I look back on it now, and I see the quality and the caliber of, you know, Okada, Omega, um, Suzuki, all of those guys, I, I realized that, you know, um, probably didn't have the talent at the time to uh, go and hang with any of those people. Um, but... Uh, the only connection overseas, there are really two of them. There was Rick Patterson, uh, Leatherface. So he would come up for, uh, uh, it was All-Star or ECCW. I can't remember which one. Um, but he was frequently going back and forth from Japan and would take guys over there with him. Um, uh, in fact, uh, and Korea. In fact, I believe that's how, uh, you know, Juggernaut worked, uh, uh, Korea, then the um, the Budokan Hall, and and uh, even worked in Brunei. I believe that was the Rick Patterson connection. And then you had uh, uh, Michelle Starr, right? Uh, and so um, Michelle or Mark, uh, he would uh, go to Korea a lot, South Korea. Um, in fact, I remember him getting his hotel room broken into and his passport and valuables stolen. I remember Sue was in a panic, his wife trying to get uh, figure out how to help him with that. But those were really the only overseas connections if, or, or people that were working over there at the time. 
Um, and, uh, you know, and, and Star, of course, was going to give, you know, the opportunities that he had to his ECCW guys that had come up through the House of Pain and that he knew well, as he should. And uh, and then, you know, Rick Patterson, uh, um, don't really know what his criteria was so much, but when there was, was an opportunity for something awesome, uh, like, like Juggernaut was, for example, that would do well in Japan, size, style, all of that, uh, you know, he, he likely made that happen, uh, assuming that that was the connection. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would have loved to have done it. Um, there was just no, no connections at that time. I do remember uh, hearing stories in the locker room of young talent um, that would falsely get uh, Rivera Steakhouse jackets and uh, how once when they were caught doing that, certain ones, um, they never wrestled again. And I'm sure you can read between the lines. Um, but, uh, no, that was, uh, that, that was really, uh, the extent of, of Japan opportunity or really anything overseas in, in, uh, in Asia. One of the other big things that wrestlers have strived for over the last 30 years or so is the PWI 500. If, wrestlers in the current era make it it's a game changer for them it's a milestone moment they're thrilled to death if they don't make it everybody had to pay to get into it it's a worthless list that sort of thing but before the dawn of social media wrestlers used it sort of as a gauge as to where they were in their career and looked forward to making it was the PWI 500 something that was on your mind ever, or was it something that was sort of there but not really in your mindset? So I'll tell you, I'll, I'll say this. So uh, as a wrestling fan, especially uh, one who uh, uh, had just, you know, at age 13 gotten cable and was watching WWF and, and you know, maybe a WCW Worldwide here or there. When I got my first issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated that had the PWI 500 in it, I had no idea that there were independent promotions or other promotions that existed outside of what I was seeing on television. And so that fascinated me, right? It was like overnight all of a sudden the number of characters that I thought were cool and that I could, you know, and, and, uh, invest in and, and, uh, call myself a fan of multiplied, you know, exponentially overnight. Um, and, uh, I remember, uh, it was Miss Texas. Jackie was, uh, number 500 and was the first wo uh, woman in the PWI 500. That was the era of when I got my first, PWI 500. So I don't know if that was 93, 94, somewhere in there. Um, I always thought, and for the first couple of years that I wrestled, I always thought it would be very cool to get in the PWI 500. However, um, I later learned that, you know, other than the guys on WWF and WCW, a lot of the people that were getting into it, you know, call it, I don't know, number 150 to 500, uh, either knew someone or were paying outright for it. And when I found out that there was a black market for it and that it wasn't uh, entirely on the up and up, 
my interest overnight uh, waned. Now, um, uh, I do have some friends that I, I love dearly that I know have been in it. Uh, I know they wouldn't have paid to be in it. So that part could have changed over time, uh, and I hope it did. But uh, once I found out that it wasn't on the up and up uh, overnight, I, I really just wanted nothing to, to do with it. And, and actually never even bought a, a Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine again. It, it pissed me off so much. <laughs> Forgotten about that. It's an interesting question. Interesting question. Well, we are winding down to the last bit of the show today, and I want to make sure you have ample time. If there's anything you would like to say to our listeners today, plug and promote absolutely anything at all you would like. Floor is yours. Yo, hey, I, I appreciate it very much. Uh, you know, I think uh, uh, one of the hobbies that I have on the side is I uh, buy and sell uh, high-end uh, baseball cards. Uh, both graded and uh, and not graded, and so uh, on eBay you can find me at, at Rock on Ink with Rock spelled R A C H, uh, and so uh, if you're interested in baseball cards, uh, uh, graded or otherwise, uh, definitely check it out, and uh, uh, you know happy to uh, to help you and get what you want, and if uh, you mention the show, I'll be happy to give you a discount as well uh, for listening. Uh, I think uh, the uh, the only other thing um, that uh, I'll leave everyone with is just how incredible it is that the wrestling landscape and the wrestling world, both for those that stay in it and those who have left it, how no matter what, it shapes their lives and the lives of those people uh, forever. And there's very few things in life that you can invest time into that 20, 30, 40 years removed uh, still play a very critical role in your everyday life and who you are. And pro wrestling is special like that. And so, um, uh, you know, I always ask people to be respectful of that and, and to always be mindful of that and to take care of and show respect uh, to the veterans of the sport, um, and, and further, you know that paying your dues in that industry uh, has broken a lot of people, and the ones that are still alive today, it's a privilege, and those people should be respected and cherished as should the industry. So I appreciate your time. That's everything for me today. And, uh, again, if there's any opportunity to come on or you want to talk again in the future, it would truly be my pleasure and my honor. So thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun today. Pleasure is all ours. We thank you so much for being on today. Great having you. We'll definitely have to have you back on. I think we could talk to you for hours upon hours, but we don't want to monopolize your time. But we definitely appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Well, thank you. My best to you. Have a happy holiday season, and we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Same to you. Well, fans, as we close out the day, I have a bit of sad news to report. Uh, We lost Mr. Big. A lot of you know him as Cowboy Hank Dalton from the Micro Wrestling Federation. Uh, We go back to the old Hoosier Pro Wrestling days in Indiana. He was a staple there for many years as Mr. Big. 
Uh, he wrestled under Hank Dalton for many years in the last several years. However, best you knew him, well wishes go out to his family and all that will miss him. So as we close out the show today, we will toll the bell ten times for the late Mr. Big. 